Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Matthew Loveridge and today I'm joined by Simon Bromley to discuss the things that bike makers do. So, to kick off, Simon, you've just got a new bike out of its box you're admiring its lovely carbon wheels, and suddenly something's not right. What is it that annoys you that bike makers do on that front? Not every bike maker does this, but one of the things that consistently annoys me about new bikes that I see are uh, bad tyres. Um, and the, the primary the primary reason it annoys me so much is because, you know, manufacturers will spend hours and years and hundreds of thousands of pounds and dollars on development to, to sort of save you know a couple of watts on the handlebar or whatever and then they'll throw it all away by <laughs> by by putting rubbish tires on the wheels that end up losing you you know multitudes of that really and and it's not just the kind of the watts lost in rolling resistance you know, bad tires also affect the ride feel they affect your grip you know, maybe even puncture resistance, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think that for me, that is one of my biggest bugbears. When we're talking about cheap tyres, what do we what do we really mean? I mean, like, they'll generally be from a reputable manufacturer, won't they? Yeah, generally they'll be from a reputable manufacturer. But I suppose like any kind of brand, brands will have a range of tyres at different price points to hit kind of different performance goals. and that And that's obviously fine. I suppose, you know, we're really talking about kind of the more expensive road bikes uh, specifically. You know, if you buy a very cheap 
you know, 500 pound road bike from decathlon or whatever, I'd probably, you know, I, I wouldn't criticize it if it didn't have, you know, the fastest continental race tires, perhaps, but on, you know, if I pay, if I pay sort of closer to 3000 pounds, then I'm going to expect something top draw. I mean, I know you uh, recently reviewed a Merida, which came with, I think they came with continental, uh, Grand Prix four seasons tires, which are a bit, bit, a bit blunt. Yeah, that's that was a good example actually. That was on the um, Merida Sculptura Endurance, which is a sort of squishy endurance bike. I called it gravel adjacent, and in most respects, really lovely bike. Um, it's quite well specced. I was reviewing the top model with Altegra Di two. It's not a cheap bike. Um, it was three thousand something. I forget the precise figure, but yeah, they'd put um, Continental Grand Prix four seasons on it which is sort of one of those tires where it's like fine you know i'd I'd commute on it quite happily i'd maybe train on it in the winter if i did that sort of thing don't really train but on a quite expensive quite nice bike that otherwise has got a fantastic spec it's just like it's quite a stodgy disappointing tire to ride day to day and it doesn't let the bike shine and i think i think that's the really unfortunate thing is that you a bike manufacturer really does themselves a disservice when they make a really nice bike and then they just put kind of mediocre tires on it, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And like like you said, it, it kind of it stops the the bike getting the best out of itself. And you know, I, I, I perhaps pay more attention to this than most people, but I often, you know, I like to take about take apart bikes to a certain extent when I when I get them. And the other thing that you often see is is cheap inner tubes as well. And again. You know, inner tubes don't cost the earth, but good ones are slightly more expensive. But because obviously you don't see them in the pictures or in the bike shop, it's it's quite easy for manufacturers to kind of skimp on quality a little bit there and spec a kind of heavier, tougher inner tube rather than, you know, I don't think I've ever seen latex inner tubes specced on a on a road bike, for example, uh, as stock. But it's a really big, it's a really big performance gain. Or, you know, you could even go to a tubeless setup, for example, and we are seeing more brands do that, to be fair. I feel like there are going to be letters if I don't ask you, other than latex, which would be quite surprising. <laughs> what would you like to see in an inner tube from a bike maker? Well, if I, you know, if you're gonna, if you're the kind of bike manufacturer who's going to do the right thing and spec, say, a Continental GP five thousand clincher tire on your race bike, then I want to see Continental supersonic butyl tubes at least or you know you can yeah i mean you know i would really like to see vittoria or michelin latex tubes i know you know there are certain certain people think they're slightly harder to install because there's a chance of pinch flatting and and i, and I kind of get that that's fine but there are there are very good high quality butyl inner tubes that will save you a few watts rolling resistance and you know it, they don't cost the earth compared to the kind of you know, like a, a good quality inner tube can make as much as much difference as a kind of slightly better wheel set, and they cost a lot less. So I just, it's it's kind of like a, a a place where people skimp on that they shouldn't do. I guess, yeah, I can see from a bike maker's point of view, they're never going to launch a bike and say this is the amazing new whatever it is saves forty five seconds over forty kilometers, and by the way, it has really nice inner tubes. <laughs> Yeah, but they could do because, you know, they could say instead of then saying 45 seconds, they might be able to say 50 seconds or a minute, you know, like the rolling yeah. resistance makes a big difference. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a bugbear. I think as we move towards tubeless, we are seeing more of that. And, you know, obviously, if, if, if you're specking your if you're a manufacturer and you're specking your bike with Schwalbe Pro One tubeless tires, 
then you don't have to worry about the other tubes and that's a great tire you know so that kind of kills two birds with one stone but yeah i certainly on a kind of high-end race bike i don't want to see a cheap tire anywhere near it it's a real it's a real buzzkill i think we can pretty much agree on that one i guess on a semi-related note let's go on to our next one which is claims that bike makers make about their bikes i know this is another for listeners who don't know simon well he has a lot of opinions so, <laughs> and this this is a real big one for, for simon so do you want to give us that yeah so I, I i really wish bike brands would stop pretending that making something lighter makes it faster and i know there'll be a few people who are kind of really up in arms about that you know if there's any weight weenies out there i kind of apologize if that triggered you but we really must <laughs> admit that uh, outside of very specific situations like hill climbs where you're only going up the hill and not coming down it and you know and that's about it but making bikes lighter ju it just doesn't make them any faster so you pay a lot of money for that and manufacturers love to kind of say or oh, this wheel set or this frame is you know it's 50 grams lighter than that one therefore it's you know a thousand times better but the reality is that it doesn't really make any any meaningful difference to performance to play devil's advocate very slightly lightweight components and bikes do appeal because there's that sort of bling factor and and of course weight is something that's very easy for us as riders to measure and something that you experience when you pick the bike up whereas other performance games are perhaps harder to quantify for those not equipped with wind tunnels and laboratories yeah you're absolutely right and if you want to build a lightweight race bike f covered in you know expensive bling components because that's what you like and you think it affects the ride quality, then I won't argue with that because light bikes certainly do ride very differently to a kind of, you know, heavy aero bike with deep section wheels, for example. You know, uh, I'm testing a very aero bike at the moment and, you know, you go out and ride that on a windy day and you have to really pay attention. So it, it's, you know, but it, I really love that, but not everyone will. And so if you want a lightweight bike because you think, it feels really good when you go out on the ride. It feels really responsive. You know, you you enjoy the, that feeling of the kind of lighter, shallower wheel on descents or on windy days, for example. Then that's perfectly legitimate. Um, it's just we shouldn't we shouldn't kid ourselves, and brands shouldn't you know kind of mislead us into believing that it's going to make us go from A to B any faster, unless that A to B is very specifically up a climb and doesn't include a downhill. Yeah, I, I can certainly see the sense in that. I think also it's it's worth putting into perspective the differences that we're talking about because uh, sort of quite cheap carbon frame these days is usually not really more than a kilo. Where, and the very, very best carbon frames are now pushing sort of sub 800, sub 700 grams. So that's quite a tiny difference in total that we're talking about. Probably, typically, no more than three or 400 grams. And then that's only the frame we're talking about here. If, in fact, if you put the very expensive components on the slightly heavier frame, you'd still have a super, super light bike. Yeah, and, and the amount of money you would have to spend to kind of drop a kilo from your bike is is, you know, can be pretty astronomical. You know, if you had a kind of 
you know, a, a kind of mid-range 1500 or 2000 pound road bike to, to take a kilo off of that, you know, you, you would almost have to double your money in a sense, you know, like you're not going to be able to take, you know, you, you'd really struggle to take more than 500 grams off the wheels, most likely. And it's, as you say, the frames, for example, even moving from say, you know, a kind of S works frame from a kind of standard non S works frame, you might only save 150 grams or so. And I mean, I've, I've pulled that number off the top of my head to be fair. So if anyone from Specialized is listening, you know, I apologize if that's not accurate, but it, you know, the same applies to all brands. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, obviously racers have always wanted to make things lighter and, you know, people famously used to drill holes in things to make it lighter. And, you know, Eddie Merckx's hour record bike had, you know, drillium everywhere, but it would have made him slower because those holes would have increased the air resistance. You so. should tell him. You should definitely tell him that. Oh, yeah. Well, if I ever meet him, I'll bring it up. and <laughs> I'm sure he'll be super receptive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, like I say, I, I think, you know, lightweight bikes are a perfectly, you know, just like any other category of bikes, they're a perfectly legitimate thing to enjoy. We just, you know, just there's no, there's no point believing it's really good. They don't make bikes faster. That's my only thing. Okay, you make a compelling point. Um, and sticking with things that arguably don't really matter, I'd like to talk about how bikes look and specifically paint jobs. This has been a bugbear of mine. I've written about it before for Bike Radar, which is that an awful lot of bikes have incredibly dull paint jobs. And this is particularly since carbon became the dominant material in higher-end bikes a huge, huge number of them are simply black. And there is a logic to that because paint or even just lacquer adds weight. And so the less of a finish you have on a bike, the lighter it can be. But it does mean that your bikes are terribly, terribly somber. And I would love for more manufacturers to inject colour into their ranges. And I do think it's worth calling out those that do. So we've we keep mentioning specialised. Other bike makers are available. They do very nice paint jobs. But others, for example, such as Trek, with their amazing Project One colour schemes, uh, there are a couple of brands that have custom schemes, like Ridley does it or Bayer does it. Do you have any other favourites? Um, it's hard to think off the top of my head because, as you say, so many brands just kind of do black, matte black, you know, maybe a white, you know, I think white is a terrible color for bikes in the UK because it just gets so dirty and impossible to keep clean. But, you know, even brands like Giant will offer a kind of, you know, a kind of nice gloss blue or maybe a gloss red or something. You know, the kind of, the notorious brands for things like this are often uh, German brands like Canyon or Rose. But, to, you know, to be fair, and, and to be fair to them, you know, like Canyon used to make a very nice uh, Katusha red uh, air road which I think you you had a custom one to review in a couple a few years ago, Matthew. Yeah, that that was a stunning bike, and also in, in Canyon's defence, because they were a brand that I used to criticise for this, they've got a lot better, and they have some actually quite Larry paint jobs. They t like again, they tend to do team ones that are quite good, and because they sponsor various teams, and some of them really are quite nice. They do also do a lot of black bikes, and when I've asked. I think I asked Canyon years ago about this and they said, yeah, that's that's what the German market likes. They just, they like black bikes. So it's understandable that they do make them. But yeah, more, more variety would certainly be good. <laughs> I agree about the white bikes thing as well because it's just not a good choice unless you like cleaning your bike all the time. And similarly, matte paint jobs, 
can be a complete nightmare. They're just not worth it. They look amazing in photographs and they look amazing in a showroom. But when you actually ride it day to day and grease is like getting ingrained into a matte finish, I would say that they are fundamentally not worth it. Yeah. And, and you, you know, quite often these days, especially with uh, kind of lightweight aero bike design is kind of converging around these kind of cam tail tube shapes with drop seat stays you know, blah, blah, blah. Everyone knows what we're talking about because we get these comments all the time that, oh, all bikes look the same these days. But of course, you know, all bikes, when when bikes were made out of thin steel tubing, every single bike looked the, exactly the same practically. But what that meant was that brands had to kind of differentiate themselves with paint jobs. And so we used to see, you know, they're not exactly wild paint jobs like you get on a kind of Trek Project 1 or something, but you would at least see something in it. Each brand maybe had a different color. And obviously, you know, Bianchi's is a kind of famous one with its uh, Celeste blue. Is that how you say it? But um, Don't quote me, probably. No. <laughs> but, it, you know, I, I just, it would be nice to see. We are, you know, we are seeing more of it now because I think this is something we've probably been banging on about for a few years and we are seeing more of it now and, and brands are getting better at it. But it, it, I would still like to see more choice. And I understand that obviously when you're making something for a mass market, you can't offer loads of choice because that's expensive for a brand. And obviously, you know, brands are businesses and they have to make a profit. But at the same time, you know, we can't, we can't all just ride around on a, on a sea of matte black bikes. It, I just, I won't stand for it. I agree. And coming back to the weight point, uh, we know that paint obviously adds weight. Uh, from what you just said earlier, I'm assuming that that wouldn't bother you then. No, not at all. Exactly. I just don't think it bothers me. And actually, you know, I, I heard a thing, I can't remember, a few months ago, maybe even a year ago or so, that the Formula One teams were experimenting with different types of paint that were apparently, you know, more aerodynamic than standard paints. And that got me really excited because that, you know, that is a potential performance benefit gain that we're missing out on for the sake of shaving you know, 100, 200 grams off a frame that actually doesn't really make any difference, but just looks good on a spec sheet. That does sound exciting. I'd be really interested to know what is the texture that is fastest for a paint. And it's just probably like, you know, it's probably just got a rough finish, but if you applied it strategically, you know, I, some people who have been around a little while may remember the uh, Pinarello Graal time trial bike that Team Sky used to use um, around the time when Bradley Wiggins won the tour. Well, that had a kind of, zigzagged on the down tube uh, molded into the carbon fiber but that was actually there to kind of create turbulence that would reduce the drag on the frame set and you know whether it worked or not i don't know but i have heard some people say that it was quite a clever innovation that actually did have an effect so it, you know creating kind of strategic surface roughness on a frame just like we see with kind of aerodynamic jerseys and you know overshoes and things like that it's an effective thing and it would be interesting to see a manufacturer kind of explore or exploit that i look forward to the uci banning it because that's what usually happens <laughs> yeah, yeah they definitely i'm sure they would <laughs> yeah let's go back to a slightly more pedestrian one another new bike thing now and again a i think it's fair to say a hobby horse of yours simon <laughs> Uh, what is it about drivetrains on new bikes that really grinds your gears? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, this, there's, people are going to disagree with this one. And, and you you may well disagree. I'm mean, gonna, probably going to tell me there's a really good reason for it. But, um, you know, when I get a new bike or even, you know, a new chain or a new group set or anything like that, it, it, it infuriates me that it's covered in 
uh, grease. Now, if you're at all interested in keeping a clean, well-lubricated drivetrain, then grease is the kind of worst thing in the world because obviously it's super thick, it attracts loads of contaminants, it's, it's in, like, impossibly hard to remove. And if you put like a kind of, you know, like a, a decent quality lubrication on top of it, you know, perhaps like a wax lubricant or something, it just, it, it, it will prevent that lubricant from adhering to the kind of internals of the chain where you want it to. And so what you have to do, you don't have to, <laughs> but what, what I do, do <laughs> is I, you know, whenever I get a new bike or a new chain is I, and I whip the chain off and I get it in some really strong degreasers and I just strip it of everything and you, and I strip it down to bare metal and then Personally, I, I immersion wax my chains in a mixture of paraffin wax and Teflon. Uh, there's a recipe for that on biteradar.com if, you, if you're into that sort of thing. But, um, but, you know, you could also then lubricate it with a kind of high quality drip lube like Squirt or Smooth or something like that. And, um, and then, you know, that helps keep your chain clean. But having to do that, it's a very involved process, obviously. And... You know, the grease is phenomenally hard to get rid of and you need some st quite strong chemicals. And I just wish, I mean, I mean, Campagnolo recently announced their new gravel group set, Ecar, and I believe that said it comes with a pre-lubricated chain. And I that piqued my interest a lot. I don't know if you know any more about that at this point. What they said um, when the group set launched, by the way, I'm going to correct your pronunciation because it's actually Ecar. Oh, apologies. It's named after a mountain. Um <laughs> What they said was that the chains are given an ultrasonic bath, which, as I understand it, is so that the lubricant penetrates as effectively as possible between the rollers and stuff. Now, I don't know what sort of lubricant they're using, but from how they described it, it sounded like maybe it wasn't your conventional slap-it-on type grease. I don't know. Yeah, so so now I... See, that would what that's what I really like. Because, I, you know, I'm sure there were people out there... Uh, screaming that the, the kind of grease that they apply to a chain out of the factory is a perfectly fine lubricant and you can leave it on and it you know it helps protect the train the chain during transport and all of that stuff and i kind of you know i, I buy I, I buy that like obviously you know if, you, if shimano is making millions of chains it does have to they do have to have some sort of shelf life but it would be great if you could buy a race chain that didn't you know cost the kind of hundred pounds that boutique companies like ceramic speed sell them for directly from shimano because they have the economies of scale to make them much cheaper and i think a dura ace chain or even though perhaps even an altegra chain should come pre-treated for the kind of performance usage that the brand says that they they are kind of fit for if you buy one of these optimized chains from a company like Ceramic Speed, and I think Muckoff does something quite similar, don't they? Yes. Are they they're effectively doing the sort of process that you do yourself? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they'll you know they'll be doing it much better than I kind of am at home. You know, I'm using kind of glass jars and mineral turpentine and things like that, whereas they'll have ultrasonic cleaners. You know, there and, and also obviously you know, because they're doing it on a more industrial scale, they'll be recycling their chemicals much more effectively and, you know, getting, ev squeezing every last watt out of there because they have their own proprietary lubricant recipes. But yeah, that's essentially it. And, and it, you know, it's a good, if you don't want to, 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 
to kind of get your heavy duty rubber gloves out and deal with nasty chemicals that is a great way of getting a race optimized chain that you can because because once you've had that it's much easier to re-lubricate it I think from I mean like main my main issue with this whole thing is that I think like most people I probably can't be bothered to do what you're describing. <laughs> um, also, I feel like I internalized the idea probably more than a decade ago reading you know Sheldon Brown or something classic bicycle website mm. not as good as BikeRadar.com but a very useful not resource bad. particularly for working on older bikes and people like him used to say you know the factory grease is really high quality stuff. It's there for a reason. You shouldn't try and drive it out. You should just leave it on as long as possible. And because I ride a lot of new test bikes, I have ridden ridden a lot of bikes just with that factory grease because I haven't had them long enough that I would have gone to the trouble of stripping a chain. So I think, you know, the issue is it's not that it isn't a high quality grease because I'm, you know, I have no doubts that it it probably is. It's more the fact that grease has a tendency to attract contaminants like kind of sand, grit, uh, all of those things and as soon as they get onto the chain and in the chain they cause you know they basically becomes a kind of liquid sandpaper that just starts to wear all your parts down now that's not a problem if you're a journalist and you kind of you know you only ride a bike for a couple of months and then send it back to the brand but you know for someone who has to spend their own money on parts that that can be a real issue and so properly lubricating and having a clean drivetrain can really extend the life of your drivetrain as well as obviously offering performance benefits from the fact that you're not losing as many watts to mechanical friction um so yeah it, it's not it's, it's not that the grease isn't good on its own it's just it's it's the kind of the effects of then what happens when you go out and ride in the real world unfortunately you know in a lab setting there isn't much difference between bicycle lubricants because it's perfectly clean you know the, the grease might have a little bit more stiction friction but it, it's close otherwise uh, having done your procedure when you do strip your chain and when you immerse it and give it its bath and stuff, what does your kind of day-to-day maintenance look like then? So basically in between re, you know, if, if, if you, this is a little, a little bit of a big caveat in between dry rides, you don't really have to do anything because it doesn't, because the wax forms a solid dry coating. It doesn't attract any contaminants and you don't have to, do anything to it now if you ride in the wet then the chain will go rusty if you don't do anything to it but thanks to the advent of quick release chain links it's very easy to just pop that chain off and kind of you can basically rinse the chain in boiling water to melt off the kind of wax and that will take the contaminants with it and then you just put it back in the wax pot are you one of those savages that ignores the warning from chain manufacturers not to reuse quick links because quite a few of the 11 speed ones for example do say that you're not supposed to reuse them yeah i do i'm I'm quite you know i try to be quite careful with it and if it doesn't feel like hard to reconnect then i don't take my chances and i will get a new one i I do try and use kmc reusable links wherever possible but i do find that shimano and sram quick release links are good for usually two or three uses it's you know it's it's a bit of a problem so on my time trial bike which tends to get ridden only in the dry for example you know i i very rarely have to take the chain off anyway but on on a winter road bike 
I haven't quite found a good balance yet. And so what I've, what I've tended to do is kind of, I wax the chain initially and then kind of clean it with sort of water and then top that chain up with a kind of wax based lubricant, like squirt or smooth in between, you know, popping it off and getting it in the wax pot. But it, it's not, I, I'll admit it's not quite ideal. I mean, I spoke to one kind of chain expert and he recommended getting an anti-rust chain, but we're getting, you know, quite deep down the rabbit hole <laughs> i mean this yeah this sounds like a complete nightmare to me and the approach that i've usually <laughs> taken with chains is i i wipe them with a rag and i occasionally lubricate them and yeah my drive chains have never been the cleanest or probably the fastest but they do work for me <laughs> yeah you know i i i i know this won't be for everyone um but it this this kind of hits my kind of twin loves of not spending money and also being fast, so it's a it's a really good one for me. <laughs> okay, the get the gains are there if you want to take them. Let's move on to our final topic, and this is entirely not a tech topic. It is the naming of bicycles. Now, I think that a lot of bike manufacturers don't do a very good job on this front, um, and I suspect you might agree with me on this. There are lots of different approaches to bike naming. Obviously, some makers will have quite a clearly defined hierarchy where they'll have one model and then it will be followed by, say, a number, and that tells you where it falls in the range. Relatively straightforward. But then you do get into all sorts of funny suffixes, prefixes, or just downright offensive naming. So going back a few years, a uh, very popular bike, which instantly I actually own, is the On One Pompino. And I don't recommend that you Google Pompino at work because it refers to a sexual act in Italian and it'll get you in trouble. <laughs> and in a similar vein, uh, Cove used to make a variety of what I would call deeply childishly named bicycles, such as the Stiffy, the Hand Job, probably others that are too, too fruity for a podcast. Mm. And I just think that you have to think quite carefully when you're trying to appeal to a wider market about whether that's really the image you want for your bike brand. I think also there's a problem of a lack of originality. So how many bikes have we seen with SL in the name or SLR or some variation thereof? It just, it becomes endlessly repetitive. And with so many different bike brands doing it, you kind of, you stop seeing the different models clearly. Are there any that particularly come to mind for you as being poorly chosen? Um, I, you know, uh, some of it, some of it is kind of around the details for me. I suppose you know they'll have things, uh, you know that that Merida we we sort of mentioned earlier, the Sculptura Endurance it, that had a kind of e suffix on the end that confused a lot of people, and I think it was e because it was uh, it had an electronic drivetrain, but obviously the e suffix is also quite generally used for e-bikes these days and a lot of people commented like oh it's a weird for an e-bike or something and so does that yeah like you say the kind of sl moniker usually means super light but if everyone uses it it becomes a bit meaningless so part i have a part of a bugbear and this is you know a problem for me as a writer is when they when bike brands don't change the name of a bike year to year at all and so you know for giant tcr it's always a giant tcr advanced sl and then we have to add 2020 onto it and and so you if someone says oh i have a giant tcr advanced sl i mean they could have had it could have had one from the last 25 years and you it doesn't tell you what they've got 
Yeah, that's a fair point. Although I guess Giant would argue they've got a lot of brand equity in the name TCR and there is a kind of continuity there. Actually, um, you mentioned the e-bike thing with Merida. I think e-bikes have brought out some of the worst tendencies when it comes to bike naming um, because a lot of manufacturers have taken the approach of using the same names as their standard bike range, but then adding some modifier. So, for example, Canyon puts colon on into the names of their e-bikes. So you end up with the Spectral, the normal bike, and the Spectral on. And and they, they do this across the whole range of both road and mountain bikes. It just it doesn't trip off the tongue very well. But it's not as bad as Focus, who have decided to use a superscript too. So the idea is that you've got the standard bike and then you've got the e-bike version, which is squared because it's better. It's got, <laughs> got a motor. But the problem with using superscript is obviously no one can type it, at least not easily. It's entirely SEO proof if you work for a leading bicycle website like bikeradar.com. So things get muddled between standard bikes and e-bikes. It just doesn't seem like a very good idea. Giant does... E plus on the names of so you get like the trance standard trail bike and the trance E plus and then again you're like do I write the plus symbol or do I write P L U S and I just what why do e bikes have to be like a weird variant of an existing bike why can't they be a thing in their own right I don't really understand it yeah I mean just just to revisit the the thing about Giant I, I obviously I know they have a lot of kind of brand recognition built up in the TCR but I think I prefer the way Specialized does it with you know they say Tarmac SL6 SL7 and then presumably they'll you know move on to SL8 it it just kind of helps make it easier but yeah I completely agree on the e-bike thing as well there's a kind of you know I know obviously because e-bikes have been big and heavy for a while but there's a thing that at the moment they're trying to make them like oh you can't really tell it's an e-bike and that's good for some reason but as you say, perhaps it would just be better if they stood on their own two feet and were just a separate category and, you know, didn't have to kind of ape what a road bike does and and, and accept the kind of benefits that they can bring to riding beyond a normal road bike. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, that's a whole separate discussion in a way about e-bikes and their place in the market. But we certainly think they're a good thing in the right context and Hopefully, this is like a passing fad when it comes to the naming. I, I criticised Canyon there, incidentally. One thing I will say about Canyon is that they are very logical in their bicycle naming in a similar way, probably not coincidentally, to, for example, BMW cars. So when you get a Canyon bike name, each part of the name is performing a specific function. So you'll have like the model, like, say, the Ultimate, and then you'll have... It used to be AL for the aluminium one, doesn't exist anymore, but you'll get CF for carbon. And then following that, there'll be SL for the second tier model or SLX if it's the top tier model. And then after that, you'll get something that tells you probably what group set it's got. So it might be like ETAP or DI2 or something. And so the names are incredibly long and they don't trip off your tongue, but they do actually contain information, which I think is quite handy. Whereas a lot of other makers, they'll just give you a number and then you'll have to go and look up like what that means in the range. Because And also some manufacturers go low numbers are good bikes and some have high numbers as the high-end bikes. And there's no <laughs> consistency across the industry about that. Yeah, I mean, like you say, I suppose there's not there's not too much to much more to say on it other than 
it's hard naming things isn't it i mean every time i have to come up with a kind of catchy clickbait headline that doesn't appear to be clickbait it, you know I, I struggle so i suppose you know for a brand coming up with a a new name for its bikes it is difficult but certainly you know like you said earlier there are things to avoid i mean you don't want to, you know you don't want to risk getting cancelled for a kind of dodgy name so no. that that's definitely one to avoid and we do it is better it's preferable as you say when the kind of bike um the name sort of denotes something about about the build or about the actual components or what it's made of and things like that because it just it just it just makes sense doesn't it yeah i think so and i think that's all we've got time for thank you very much for listening please do like subscribe share this podcast comment on the article where we post it on bike radar because it's lovely to get some feedback about these sometimes it can feel with podcasts like we send them out into the abyss and we don't really know what people think of them so we would love to hear your feedback thank you very much for listening thanks for joining me simon thanks very much matthew bye thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com radar.com